Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, what's the longest flight, continuous flight you've ever taken in your life? In reality or in my mind? Well, let's have both. Okay. Uh, I don't know, nine hours? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to London, I believe. And in my mind, I've been on a hot air balloon journey for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the, the hot air balloon journey sounds a lot more uh, romantic and a lot uh, a lot smoother. I mean, you're just gliding. You're up there in a basket. I'm assuming there's a, a second basket that might have uh, you know some some nice bread in it or something. And a panda bear to keep me company. And a well, that now that sounds really dangerous. Uh, you're going well, to be mauled and you're going to have to jump. I know. Half laid for your life. This out is, of this hot this air is balloon. a storybook panda. Okay. Yeah. So what, it talks and stuff. Of course. What about you? Um, definitely my flights to Asia either. And I, the thing is like once a, once a, a flight is long enough, it becomes eternally long. It becomes long in a way that hours can't really measure it. Uh, so counting in, um, both the, the length of the flight and the, uh, the, the, the factors of the flight, I would say the flight home from China with my son uh, and my wife. That was crazy. With a toddler. With a toddler. We should say. Yeah. So that was that was the longest plane ride I've ever been on. But in this episode, titled Up in the Air, we're going to be talking about other lengthy flights. Lengthy flights by humans, lengthy flights by birds, lengthy flights by robots. And I was really astounded by some of the information we're going to discuss in this episode, because some of this I was already familiar with. I was knew about some of the records, some of the technology, but other things just completely came out of left field for me. Yeah, and I think this is one of those topics that's always going to be fascinating to us because we would all like the power of flight and we've been trying to attain it from time immemorial. And I was actually thinking about um, a, a later example, but again, a hot air balloon example of the Montgolfier brothers who created the first hot air balloon. And I thought, ah, if only I could go back in time <laughs> to September 19th, 1783 to Versailles, where one of these hot air balloons Carried a sheep, a rooster, and a duck, and flew for eight minutes in front of Louis the Sixteenth, Marie Antoinette, and of course the French court. I mean, that must have seemed like just alchemy and and all sorts of magic. Well, to the people under the sheep, but I, I bet the the rooster uh, and the duck were probably not as impressed because they're like, "All right, oh flight, oh great, you've invented flight. That's great, humans." Because, but back to your point. Humans have always, obviously, craved flight. We've 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 stood there. We've invented things. We've we've made weapons and tools. And then we look up, and the birds are flying all overhead. And we're like, I want that too. And it feels like nothing. All those inventions yeah. feel like zero. And for ages and ages and ages, it was forbidden us. We might try to strap together some sort of wingsuit, and then we'd fall off a cliff and die, or horribly injure ourselves. And 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 we and we just can't help but envy those birds. Um, there's a great YouTube clip that's been going around recently. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, I believe it's uh, European or Russian origin, where uh, someone's just turning their camera out the, the window, and they're they're filming this crow. We've discussed crows before, mm-hmm. highly intelligent birds, tool users, and this bird is taking like a um, a little dish or a lens cap or, or something, and it's on the the slanted roof covered with snow, and it'll take this little uh, this little makeshift sled up to the top, and it'll ride the sled down, <laughs> and then it'll drag it back up and ride it down again. And uh, I was talking to my wife about this, and she she's like, she says, "Well, why is this crow doing this? Like, doesn't that crow know that he can fly? He's he here. He is wasting his time sledding, and sledding is the thing we do mm-hmm. as as land based creatures to try and just get a taste of what it might be to fly." Mm-hmm. 
I think that crow is just throwing it in our faces, right? Yeah. Not only can I fly, but I can sled. I think so, too. All right, let's look at some of these show-offs in the animal world here. Yeah, because, it's again, it's one thing to say, all right, and birds can fly, obviously, but how long can they fly? How how long can they keep their feet up off the ground? How long can they, they just exist in that, that, that nether world between uh, solid surface and endless sky? An exceedingly long yes. time. And we're going to look at the alpine swift. This is a small bird. Each weighs less than a quarter of a pound, and they spend the summer breeding in Europe. Then they migrate to Africa for the winter thousands of miles away. Yeah, the Alpine Swift is pretty uh, crazy because we're talking about a 1,240-mile uh, flight carried out by three Alpine Swifts, longest uh, recorded flight made by any bird. Uh, they were you know, recently tracked on one of these 200 days in the air. No stop. It seems. It seems like it was a, a nonstop flight. Um, the reason we know this is that there is a team of scientists who strapped tiny electronic monitoring devices to six Alpine Swifts before they flew south for the winter. They recaptured three of them, and they looked at this data, and they were astounded. Now, the thing about this is that these tags only collect data every four minutes, so it's impossible to rule out the chance that they touch down occasionally. Mm-hmm. But... Every single one of the data points collected for more than six months in a row indicated that at the time they were either actively flying or gliding in the air. Yeah, the gliding is key because that's basically what they're doing uh, instead of resting at night uh, based on the data. So they're gliding. And then they're, they're eating and drinking in the air as well, presumably, according to the Swiss researchers. Yeah, this is so cool. They were making meals of airborne plankton, bugs, and spiders swept into the sky by high winds. Whoa. And then they slaked their thirst by just skimming the water in rivers and oceans. Wow. I mean, that's that's eating on the run there. Yeah, I, I have I'd run across the information about the number of, of insects that you'll have swept up in, at rather high altitudes before, but I had not really put one and two together that, oh, there might be birds coming through that can not only snack on that, but depend on it uh, during a, a, a very long-distance flight. Yeah, I mean, that is fast food for that animal. Now, another uh, bird that uh, deserves mention here is the bar-tailed godwit, uh, just because of the sheer distance involved here. Uh, in, in 2007, a female uh, godwit uh, was found to have flown 7,145 miles, or uh, 11,500 kilometers, nonstop from Alaska to New Zealand. So that's without taking a break for food or drink. Yep, and that is in just nine days. The U.S. Geological Survey and PRBO Conservation Science, they outfitted 16 of these birds with satellite transmitters to study Godwit migration, trying to figure out exactly how long they were out there. Yeah, now, uh, one of these birds, which they dubbed Easy, it f- uh, flew uh, 6,340 miles directly to uh, uh, this wetland area on the border of North Korea and China. So there it touches down, has a very brief rest, and then continues the remaining 3,000 miles to Alaska. But then the return trip, nonstop, uh, 7,145 miles, flight to New Zealand, uh, uninterrupted. Now, she uh, she benefited from tailwinds on that. Yeah. And... Uh, and, of course, you're wondering uh, about the sleep. Like, how do you possibly get any rest? Well, this comes back to an old topic we've discussed before, unihemispheric sleep. You dare not put the whole brain to rest for the night because you are flying. Just put half of it to rest. Right. And and they found out that she burned up huge stores of fat, more than 50% of her body weight that she had piled on at the start of her journey in Alaska. Wow. So it's be prepared to not rest and be pre- be prepared to sleep one uh, half of the mind at a time and be prepared to lose a lot of weight. 
Indeed. Now, the reason they wanted to look at this is because the uh, the godwit migration has decreased from the mid-90s from 150,000 birds a year to 70,000. So it's thought that development along the Yellow Sea between China and North and South Korea is depriving the birds of vital food sources since those mudflats and wetlands are drained for development. And this mm-hmm. is huge. It's wiped out half the population. So examples like that are are amazing, and also again, it's, it's it's another case where we kind of look at the example of the bird, and and it kind of makes us a little jealous because even even other examples of birds that just fly south for the winter, uh, you look at them, and you might be a person who realizes, hey, I've never left this state, I've never left this city, or I've certainly never left this country, this hemisphere, and here's a bird, uh, just a, a stupid old bird, and it's doing it every year, or a smart old bird, or a small smart old bird, but. But they're probably being a little judgy, you know? You think? Yeah. Is that why they're always trying to, to squirt their guano on our heads? Oh, the people are being judgy. The, the birds are not. Uh. I don't know. Are you implying that, that people who hate birds are always trying to squirt, squirt guano? guano? Maybe. Yeah. You don't see them? Like, just off of ledges squirting yeah. their guano on? Cloaca envy, I'm guessing. There you go. On that note, let's take a break. When we get back, we are going to talk about how humans have tried to engineer their own crazy lengths of flights. All right, we're back, and we're going to talk about the longest human flight on record. And I like to think about the next example as really trying to embrace our spirit animal by naming this airship the Snowbird. Yeah, you're talking about um, the uh, ZPG-2 airship Snowbird. Uh, and uh, this was back in 1957 when uh, the Z- ZPG-2 airship uh, took off uh, from South Weymouth near uh, Boston, Massachusetts, under the command of Commander Jack R. Hunt. Uh, and uh, where did it go? Well, it went to sunny Key West, Florida. Eleven days later, it landed there, and it logged an amazing 9,448 miles or 15,202 kilometers. We're talking about 264.2 hours. And can you imagine how surreal it would be to be in that airship for 11 days? I, I can because I have, I've often seen like images of the old, uh, the old Zeppelins particularly mm-hmm. and, uh, or I've watched the second Indiana, no, it's the third Indiana Jones movie that has the, you know, the neat scenes of the Zeppelin or the, I think there's an old, um, old uh, Michael York film called, uh, Zeppelin has uh, some, some nice classy scenes as well where it does look just, Instantly attractive because you're talking a very smooth ride mm-hmm. uh, where, I mean, they say that you could take uh, an ink pen uh, or a fountain pen and you could stand it up on the table and it would just remain there just because everything was so still and so smooth. And you're you're flying nonstop in yeah. this, this fabulous uh, castle in the sky. The closest that you probably would ever get to, to like hitching a ride on a cloud. Exactly. Now. In an airplane, it's going to be harder to replicate that experience, especially if you're dealing with very long distances. Um, and especially if you are crammed in with humanity. Yes. Now, in terms of commercial flights, we talked at the, the beginning, you know, what are the longest commercial flights we've been on? If you try to, com- to uh, book a commercial flight just for the purposes of having a really long flight, let's say there's something really wrong with you and you, you just crave an excruciating <laughs> amount of time in an airplane. Like what's, recycled air. Yeah. What's the most damage you could do to your psyche, uh, with one trip nonstop? Well, formally, uh, we had a real humdinger in the uh, Newark to Singapore uh, flight uh, on Singapore Airlines, which was an 18-hour, 50-minute flight that covered uh, 9,535 miles or 15,345 kilometers. 
that one was cut out because it just um, it, it just wasn't it wasn't financially viable. You're talking about uh, a, a lot of fuel. You're talking about a, a pretty stiff journey that just isn't going to be um, applicable to everybody. Yeah, and you just missed your chance because this was just in November yeah. of 2013 that they stopped this service. Now, you can still uh, count on Qantas, though, to fly you from Sydney to Dallas in 15 hours and 25 minutes. Uh, that's a mere uh, 8,578 miles or 13,804 kilometers. Uh, still a pretty hefty flight. So I would be very interested to hear from anyone uh, who's listening to this podcast who has taken either of those flights. Or you could just get stranded on a tarmac for five hours, in which case you enter into dog time and everything is like seven times longer. Oh, that, that's true. Yeah, anytime you're flying uh, commercially, you're you're you have to factor in all that extra time that you're spending just you know waiting around at transfers or or getting to the airport, dealing with delays. Now, by the by, the shortest flight in the world, just so you know, is between the two Orkney Islands in Scotland. This is the Westray and Papa Westray Islands, just north of Scotland, and they are separated by a distance of only 1.7 miles or 2.7 kilometers. Operated by Logan Air, the flight duration is officially two minutes long, but under <laughs> ideal wind conditions, it can be completed in only 47 seconds. Wow. That's pretty short. Yep. Tickets 30 bucks a pop. There's obviously uh, no in-flight service. That's pretty good. That's a good deal. Isn't it? Uh, Why wouldn't you do it just for the experience of skipping to another island in, in a minute? Yeah. Uh, you know, I forget how long the flight was from... Um, Oahu to uh, the Big Island in Hawaii. Uh, I did that once, and that's a I'm not dealing with a, a big distance there, but definitely it took more than a minute. Well, and I find those types of little puddle jumpers to be an entirely different experience for time because mm-hmm. for me it slows down. It may only be a fifteen minute jaunt, but it feels like two hours. Yeah, just because you you're so aware of being in a tin metal can in the middle of the air. Exactly. Now, we, we were talking about commercial flights, so that's one area of, uh, of long-distance flying. Another huge area is, of course, military flight distance, where, uh, especially when you're dealing with bombers, uh, the idea that you, you can and will have the ability to deliver um, a payload to virtually anywhere on Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, so the military flight distance uh, currently still goes to the, uh, the American B-52. And this, uh, for this uh, particular... Uh, Record, you have to go back to uh, uh, January 1957 when three 52Bs made a nonstop flight around the world during Operation Power Flight. That's spelled F-L-I-T-E for some reason. I'm not sure why they went with that, but okay. I'm not going to, I'm not going to disagree with them because uh, the B-52s are pretty impressive in this uh, particular um, exercise. They covered uh, 39,165 kilometers or uh, 21,145 nautical miles or 24,325 normal miles in 45 hours, 19 minutes. Uh, there were several in-flight refuelings, which of course is key. Everyone's seen this, the, the footage of, of this before where you have the, the, uh, the refueling plane and then you have um, um, another plane, be it mm-hmm. a jet fighter or a, a bomber, and there's this wonderful, magical, almost romantic mating of the two planes. I was about to say the docking yeah, the docking uh, in in the uh, the end of the hose, if you want to call it, that has uh, has sure. Uh, let's call it that. Yes, let's call, let's call that has uh, has uh, has the these wing surfaces on it to help maneuver it into place. Um, if you ever played flight simulators, you're you're very familiar 
uh, with this. And so obviously that allows a plane to stay in the air longer because mm-hmm. instead of the plane having to land for new resources, you just bring the resources up to it. Uh, very much like uh, our bird friends who uh, are able to eat spiders on the fly and, and deal with uh, the plankton and all. Uh, so obviously this, uh, this whole exercise was just to demonstrate, hey, we can fly um, atomic payloads all over the world. To put it all this in a modern perspective about, you know, what kind of, uh, uh, reach capacity the military has the, these days, back in 2011, B-2 stealth, uh, jets made 25 hour, uh, 11,500 mile bombing missions from, uh, Whiteman Air Force Base in Missouri to Libya and back again. Okay, so by today's standards, the B-52 still stands up here. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, th- and that's why we still, the United States still uses the B-52s. Mm-hmm. It's a very tested, time-tested uh, um, uh, piece of military technology. Very dependable. Okay, now let's talk about longest endurance flight non-refueled. And we're talking about the Rutan Voyager, nine days, three minutes, and 44 seconds, 26,366 miles, or 42,432 kilometers, took place between December 14th and December 23rd in 1986. Yeah, and this is a definite third category of of human uh, uh, piloted flight uh, records because we had the commercial, we had the military, and then this is this is a, a whole area where people cram themselves into very uncomfortable yeah. uh, aircraft that are that are, it's all about just gaming the technology as much as possible like, because the the Rutan Voyager essentially is someone sitting around saying what what would we have to build to to just push this record to the to the very limits well you'd have to build something that's lightweight and is virtually a flying fuel tank and that's what the the Rutan Voyager was yeah this is sort of the flight junkie flight obsessive here and uh, the Rutan was actually piloted by two crew members, Dick Rutan and Gina Yeager. No relation to Chuck Yeager, incidentally. There you go. It's interesting that you'd have two icons of flight with the same last name, no relation. Was, Although some eaglemen might say that uh, one of them influenced the other. It's true. Right, it's true. so consciously and said, oh, I, I need to get on that. Uh, Dick's brother, Bert Rutan, designed the plane, and the Voyager was built in Mojave, California. It took five years to build and test the airplane before taking off on its record-setting flight. Yeah, and it had 17 fuel tanks, 17 fuel tanks. And the pilot would have to shift fuel from tank to tank during flight to keep things evened out. Because otherwise, you'd, you know, you'd get lopsided because this is a very, very balanced aircraft, uh, really a very beautiful aircraft. Um, it it looks, it, do look up a picture of it because it is, uh, uh, you know, very long wings, mm-hmm. very uh, almost ephemeral. Like you, you feel like you could break it just by looking at a picture of it. It does look really delicate. Yeah, and here they 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 went on this epic flight in it. Um, now, uh, so some of the details of uh, of what this consisted of, what this journey consisted of, as reported in a uh, an LA Times article that, that came out uh, in '86, uh, was really interesting because it really drives home just how. How little human comfort factored into this uh, this exercise. Yeah, that it, it is an endurance flight. Uh, that they had like no room to sleep. There, they had like half of an inflatable mattress that they had tried to that create by by cutting one in half and stitching it up, but it didn't hold air. And and then the, this is this roar of air outside of the the vehicle the whole time. And then when it comes to using the bathroom, uh, they had uh, like a like a cup with a straw. That they were able to funnel the liquids outside of the plane, and then they had just bags for the solid waste, which they were going to throw out the plane as well. But uh-huh. the but the but the one hole they had to throw it out of, the bags wouldn't fit, so they just had to stay in the plane for the whole trip. Uh, and they didn't even have diaper genies back then. You no. know, they couldn't contain the funk with that. 
Oh, and then when it came to eating, they uh, this was really fascinating uh, to think of too. So they had uh, they had food, but they didn't even dream that they were going to be able to heat anything up. But then during the course of the flight, they realized that there's this aluminum pipe that channels warm air from the engine compartment into the cockpit to keep everything toasty. And they found that they could wrap the the foil packets of food around the pipe and then wrap a towel around it for insulation, and they heat the food. You know what I love about this is, um, and we're going to talk about this in our next episode about creativity, but we talked about, um, or we've been looking a lot about innovation and uncertainty and obsessiveness. Mm-hmm. And here is a great example. I mean, people who probably, most people would have stopped halfway into the logistics of what you just described. Yeah. And said, forget it. I'm, I'm going to be, you know, sitting around with poo bags and, you know, peeing and, and directing this into a straw. Yeah, and the whole time they're not they're not getting enough sleep because it's very difficult to sleep on board. So you're 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 fighting, you're struggling to stay awake while you're you're piloting the the aircraft, and they're flying around the world. So you're not dealing with uh, with consistent weather. You're, for instance, you're having to uh, deal with a massive typhoon, which they um, ma- managed to avoid being destroyed by, yeah. and actually benefit a little bit from the tailwinds. And then they're denied airspace over Libya, so that also means they have to have to go around that and. I mean, it was just such a colossal undertaking. It's easy to miss that if you just sort of catch the, you know, in your, you know, a peripheral understanding of the news story. Oh, some people built a crazy plane and they flew around the world and it, big deal. No, it's, it's essentially they climbed a mountain here. I remember reading something recently about how interesting it is that humans are hardwired to really take on fear and, uh, to, to try to take on that in a way that they can adapt to it as quickly as possible and how we keep putting ourselves in situations where we can keep gravitating to the middle of our comfort and, and really essentially putting ourselves in, in discomforting positions. And this is, is such a good example of that. Yes. Of how can I go out on this extreme limb, survive in it, be successful and somehow find the stasis within it all. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really a testament to, to what we can do. Now, at this point, we're going to get into the longest refueled endurance flight. Now, if you're like me, because I, I went into the, into, anal, into answering this question without knowing the answer. So I was thinking, all right, it's going to be on one hand, it's going to be some endurance dudes who built some crazy plane with solar panels or something, and uh, and, and that's going to be the record uh, breaker. Or I think thought more likely it's some sort of uh, you know it's a B fifty two or B thirty six uh, you know strategic air command kind of mission from the Cold War where they just had some sort of bomber with a nuclear payload just up there you know circling the Arctic for for days and days on end. So I was prepared for either of those two possibilities, but the reality of our, our longest endured uh, endurance uh, refueled flight is really more mundane. Well, I actually was. Um I thought it was more, it was interesting because it was a lot about theatrics in terms of the refueling part, and we'll get to yes. that. But also the, the, the Vegas angle I did not realize was a part of this. Now this is the Cessna 172 Hacienda, and this was named Hacienda after a, I believe it was a hotel in Las Vegas that yes. was sponsoring it. was this sponsoring flight. the flight. So it's, it's, it's not, uh, you know, um, you know, atomic power. Or, or the, or championship of the human spirit solely that are, that are driving this particular, um, uh, record, but, uh, good old fashioned capitalism and advertising. Yeah. And that, this is 1958, by the way. Yeah. And as we all know from, from, uh, our Bugsy flicks, Las Vegas was really trying to establish itself as a tourist destination. So it had, of course, all these sorts of things that it was pulling out in terms of theatrics. Now we are talking about 64 days. 22 hours and 19 minutes and 5 seconds. 
more than 150,000 miles. So can you imagine spending two months in a Cessna yeah. and flying 24 hours a day without even landing for fuel? Because this is key. It yeah. got fuel, but it never landed. Yeah, this is, and this is a, a very unremarkable plane. I mean, it's a plane, so it's remarkable. Obviously, it flies, <laughs> and it can fly for sixty days straight uh, with uh, with with refueling. But uh, it's it's very much the kind of plane that if you just went to a you know, local airport uh, in the fifties, you would have seen. Just yeah, normal people could potentially own this airplane. It wasn't experimental. It wasn't military. Just a civilian plane. But what it did was like Cirque du Soleil stuff, um, you know, on a 1958 scale. Yeah, this is Robert Tim and John Cook. They were the ones who uh, took off in this thing, uh, doing this uh, promotional stunt. And uh, and uh, again, that distance six times around the world is the equivalent. They didn't fly around the world; they just flew around the general <laughs> area. Um, and uh, and and so, what are they going to do to refuel this? What can they possibly do to get more fuel in this plane on a regular basis? Because they're not going to get. There's no air-to-air refueling, certainly not yeah. not for not for a Cessna, not for uh, for these two guys. So what they do is they end up running formations uh, with a, a ground vehicle on a remote stretch of highway near Blythe, California. Uh, so they just kind of MacGyvered it. They they devised a way to to uh, to hook onto a hose and pump the fuel up into a, a tank that they installed on the plane's belly. Yeah, twice a day. Twice by the way, ninety five gallons of fuel into the belly tank, and food and water and other supplies were lifted up from the truck as well. Now it took them several tries to get this right. So they, they tried it once, and uh, they had to they had to bail. They tried it a second time, had to bail. Third time, had to bail. The fourth try. Was proved to be the charm, but by that point, like nobody was paying attention to the PR. They're like, "Oh, these guys are going to try and break the endurance record again." You know, who cares? So it wasn't until they'd been up forty or fifty days mm-hmm. that, that uh, everyone started paying attention to them again. I'm thinking about after that point, maybe fifty days. That's when people in that general area were like, "Oh, that circular flight path is driving me crazy." They keep buzzing by once a day, and. By some accounts, it, they're really kind of lucky they didn't crash and die because, uh, I mean, the whole time, like, there are times apparently where one would wake up and find the other one dozing off the controls. They've nice. just flown off in some random direction. I mean, again, luckily they're not trying to fly around the world. They're not dealing with, with typhoons and, uh, and, and enemy airspace, but they, they are flying in a plane, uh, over the, over the ground. Uh, they were very lucky not to die. Now, uh, Matt Pipkin and his dad, Chet, are now working to find a suitable aircraft, likely a Cessna 172, to try to break the 1950 record, and in doing so, to raise money and awareness for sexual abuse victims with their nonprofit, which is called Speak Your Silence. And instead of flying circular paths, they want to chart a cross-country path, hoping to draw more attention as they pass over each location. Yeah, and I can see that being more of a thing. You know, you can sort of like watching the, the uh, space station go over, except a little more visible. You can say, there are these guys trying to, to break this record. Uh, so currently, they have not done it yet. Mm-hmm. So by the time you listen to this podcast, who knows? Maybe they will have uh, completed this. Maybe they will have actually uh, beat this longstanding record. record. Yeah, they are slated to fly, or they're hoping to, by summer 2014. Of course, they have to raise all the funds to do mm-hmm. this. And they've and been trying to put it together for years, so it's yeah. it's... You know, I, I hope they get it off the ground, literally, but uh, but we'll see. Yeah, and if you want to check out that nonprofit again, it is Speak Your Silence. All right, so we've talked about 
birds. We've talked about planes that are piloted by human beings. Mm-hmm. But, of course, we live in a uh, an amazing and at times frightening new age of UAVs, of robotic airplanes that fly around and uh, and fly all over the world. In fact, we just had a news item not too long ago about the possibility of Amazon.com using yes. uh, drones to deliver packages. So it would make sense that you would start to look at these drones and uh, these unmanned flights and solar power and see what you can figure out. Yeah, because solar power, of course, is a great option for this. Because uh, think back to the Voyager. Uh, that was a situation where he had a very light plane. Uh, it, the only concerns were the fuel to keep it going mm-hmm. and just the bare minimum for human survival aboard it and human piloting of it. Is this the Rutan Voyager? Yeah, the Rutan yeah. Voyager. So in this case, so if you, if you take the humans out of the scenario, all right, you don't have to, that's a lot of room saved right there, a lot of uh, worries. You don't have to worry about the, the, the pilot falling asleep mm-hmm. or um, or having trouble going to the bathroom or, or what have you. And then if you take the fuel out of the scenario, the onboard fuel in the term, in the, in the form of, uh, of, of gasoline, that it opens it up even more and it's allows you to, lighter. Exactly. You get to create a, basically a flying solar panel in the form of uh, the, the Zephyr uh, created by uh, the, the company uh, uh, QuintiQ. Uh, again, it's a drone. It's a robotic airplane. It's uh, you know very light, and it has all these solar panels on top of it. And uh, the interesting uh, record that it set here for uh, for a longest UAV flight was uh, was that it flew from uh, July 9th to July 23rd over the U.S., uh, kicking off uh, at uh, the Army's uh, Yuma Proving Ground in Arizona. It clocked 336 hours, 22 minutes, or 14 days, a couple of weeks in the air. What I love about this is that it has such high technology. And, you know, you've got these recharged lithium sulfur batteries. You've got the solar panels. But it took five people (laughs) to hand launch it at the test range uh, before it could actually reach an altitude of 70,000 feet and then begin to use those solar panels on the plane's wings. And ultimately, it didn't stay up near as long as two guys in a Cessna with some help from, you know, by from uh, some dudes on the ground in a truck. But... It's uh, it's important because this uh, may be the future. There's a there's a company called Titan Aerospace that's also very much involved in the development of uh, aircraft like mm-hmm. this, and they're eyeing a five year flight. That's what they're uh, they're, they're hoping for, uh, hoping to manufacture this uh, uh, this uh, this special UAV with uh, three thousand solar panels. And the huge advantage here is that this would essentially be a cheaper and more environmentally friendly alternative to a satellite. Because if you want to get a satellite up there to, uh, you know, if you're monitoring something, if you're spying on something, or, or uh, you know, some sort of uh, communications uh, technology needs to be deployed at a, at a high altitude, satellites are expensive. And the only way to send that payload up there is on the uh, uh, the other end of an enormous explosion that uh, is pumping out all sorts of uh, bad stuff into the atmosphere. Yeah. Now, the next one on our list, which actually is our last one, is so sci-fi. I love it. It is actually beamed laser power. Yes. And what we're talking about is that in 2012, Tom Nugent's company, Laser Motive, they beamed enough energy to a 17.5-pound drone, it's a Lockheed Martin Stalker, to keep it airborne at least 48 hours, about 46 hours longer than the drone can usually fly. Mm-hmm. And it was a demonstration of the laser's power capabilities. There's no prototype yet. Yeah, this is a really 
awesome technology. Now, in the, the concept alone of wireless uh, energy um, uh, transmission, this has been for, around for a little while. Uh, the the technology has just been kind of catching up with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, for instance, uh, as far as using microwave energy to transfer that that uh, that power to a flying uh, uh, vessel, like that's been around for a while. We've proven that technology, but the problem there is the the, uh, the the greater the distance between mm-hmm. uh, the microwave emission and uh, the the recipient uh, vehicle, mm-hmm. the less power is going to be transmitted. So it would be super helpful if all you wanted was a drone to circle your skyscraper or something. Yeah, you can just microwave that energy too, and it's fine. But if you're sending a drone out on a on a long mission, mm-hmm. uh, the laser technology that's where the advantage is because uh, you're going to have uh, persistent power. Uh, you still will have to worry, you know, about uh, uh, environmental factors, about yeah. weather, etc. But you wouldn't have to have Regular microwave energy stations spread out over uh, over a certain distance. You could have uh, far fewer laser transmission centers that would be lasering that power right to the drone. Yeah, Nugent actually told Popular Mechanics that it's like plugging a system into a wall, taking that electricity and converting it to light and transmitting that light through open air to a receiver, which converts the light back into electricity. And the laser system can transfer only about 20 to 25 percent of the electricity it takes from its ground source. But drones like the Stalker don't require a huge amount of energy. And in that June test, its batteries held more energy after the test than when it began. So it may be something that actually works very well for this sort of scenario. And certainly when you start combining uh, laser-emitted uh, energy with solar energy for a drone, mm-hmm. then you're seeing the best of both worlds. It can get it can uh, feast on solar energy when that's available, and when it's not, you can uh, you can deal with the, the the direct beamed energy, and vice versa, depending on which is easier to deploy. You're also satisfying your eight-year-old fantasy of uh, a remote control like behemoth in yeah. the air. Yeah, I mean, a, a kind of a light behemoth, but very spread out, very, very elegant. Um, it, it, it's really, it, it is really phenomenal to to envision this this potential future, where maybe we get a little less dependent upon uh, straight up satellites and more on these uh, these sort of ephemeral drones that are just soaring through the air, uh, feasting off of uh, solar energy and also this crazy laser energy that we're beaming up to. You know, I was thinking about that because we talked about satellites. I think it was in the Satellite Junkies episode, and we talked about, at least in the U.S., how there are not nearly as many satellites up or plans to put them up and how that would impact us adversely in terms of weather and um, all sorts of intelligence gathering capabilities. So this might be a really good alternative. And when we look even further into the future, this idea of, of laser uh, energy um, also factors into our potential to put up, say, uh, solar energy harvesting satellites yes. in space and then beaming the energy back to Earth or back to uh, some other space station, moon uh, station, you name it, uh, as well as, uh, as a potential means of propelling solar sail spacecraft uh, vast distances through the cosmos. Uh, and the solar sails thing is just an elegant idea yes. in the first place, and we have done an episode on that as well, so check it out. So there you go, just a crash course in the question, how long can something stay in the air? How long can a bird stay in the air? How long can a man-made uh, craft stay in the air with or without humans aboard it? Yeah, and how long was the Great Oz up in that hot air balloon anyway? <laughs> That's a valid question, right? Yeah. Someone's figured that out. Some, somebody's probably applied the math to that. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, hey, if you want to uh, check out more uh, on this and other topics, if you want to see what we're blogging about, you want to listen to other podcast episodes, particularly if you want to find that, uh, that that solar sail episode we were talking about, uh, that's an older episode. You probably won't find it on iTunes. You need to go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where we have all the archives, everything you could possibly want, including links out to our various social media uh, accounts. We have, uh, what, Facebook on there, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+. We're on YouTube, SoundCloud. Go check it out. Go familiarize yourself with uh, with us and our product, and uh, you can get in touch with us uh, there as well as a more old-fashioned method. That's true. You can just send us an email. You can do so at belowthemind@discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 